0: Today my guest was Kate Rhodes, my first glass sculptor to have on the podcast, and we got to talk about things like the Blown Away TV show, which I was watching on Netflix, how difficult glasswork is as far as taking a toll on her physical body itself the issues of gender disparity in the uh, the hot shop i believe that's what they call it the fact that all artists are planning for their retrospective exhibition and you know in the line of like legacy planning and the fact that career goals are an important part of our Industry, because if you don't know what you're trying to achieve, it's really hard to achieve it, and how I still aspire to my retrospective at Guggenheim or MoMA. The Wise Fool, with me, Matthew Doles, as your host, is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway, in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstszentrené i in Norge in Norway. Links to the EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes. Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me?
1: Kate Rhodes. The last name is like the roads you drive on. When I say it, people hear Rose a lot, because that D, Gets lost.
0: Yeah. But Kate is a, 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 not a traditional spelling, also.
1: Well, you can't blame a girl for using fashion spelling on her name, nor being in love with Elvis Costello in the late 80s and loving the way his then wife, Kate O'Reardon, spelled her name. I have a little Irish in me, but it's not a family thing. My full name is Catherine, but because when I was young, I had such a temper. Kate kind of stuck. And then I just kept the business name because why not? Fair enough. And I'm happy with that because I don't like being called my full name so much by everybody.
0: I only go by it like in written documents. Very few people call me my full name out loud. Yeah. I can't think of anybody that does. So I'm always fascinated about how people got to be creative. So childhood, were your parents creative? How did you come to being creative in the first place?
1: Both my parents are creative. My mother, she got very close to graduating from VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University. I believe that's when she got pregnant with my brother in 1966. So She's, But she was very creative, and after my father and her parted ways, she made a lot of wooden sculpture, and she painted it. She was a painter when she was younger, but when we were kids, we'd ask her to draw things for us to color in. And also, I was so hyperactive like <laughs> that I had to be taught how to do macrame to keep my focus somewhere constructive. And I helped my mom with netting, helping, she would have to, she had a net she would lay out in the river and we would catch eels and stuff and eat them. So I would help her with the net, probably just sitting by and tying things and untying them because I was a little young, but, but yeah, she's definitely an inspiration.
0: So you were born in Richmond, but then you moved.
1: My father did a semester at sea when he was in high school, and then he wanted to live on the water. Like That was it. He wanted to be gone from the family, but that was a problem because we have a family business in Virginia. It was a department store, so um, Miller and Rhodes. We were the Rhodes part of Miller and Rhodes, so my father had to go to business school and So he did that, and he did his time in the business, and then he had a boat built, and we moved from Richmond to Gloucester, which is closer to the water, and on the Chesapeake Bay, or a tributary of it, near the James River. So yeah, we moved on a boat, and we sailed up and down the inland waterway to Florida and the Bahamas, and within the Bahamas for a year or so, and the Virgin Islands for five years we did some traveling in between and and it was really incredible so my mother had to entertain us a lot but my dad was able to take care of the boat and stuff and I used to not tie on the boat as well to keep me busy they like focus my energies doing that too and sanding is not my favorite thing but tying ropes yeah that's fun
0: <laughs> well I was gonna say it sounds like a, a little fidgety are you
1: like when you live on a boat with your family, there's no escaping anything. So yeah, there's there's a lot of psychological pressure. And you know, neither of my parents are very suited to raising a healthy family. So <laughs> it percolates. It percolates. Yeah.
0: I can't even be in a four bedroom house with my parents for very long. So like I could not imagine a small boat.
1: No. Yeah, you know, they just love that life and I was so fortunate to be able to grow up in nature and like slipping in and out of it. And at that time in the 70s in the Bahamas and Virgin Islands, the, there hadn't been a huge bacterial set in that killed a lot of stuff. So the, the life, the water life was amazing. And I mean, I went to local schools. We We lived in local communities. We dealt with racism. And it was very... I was so young, there was a lot of stuff that went way over my head. But yeah, it's like a pressure cooker being on a small place together. Yeah.
0: Okay, wait, just to be clear, because you brought up racism, you're white. Uh, Is somebody in your family any other uh, ethnic background?
1: No, but when you live on the islands, it's not, you're definitely a minority. Okay. And it's interesting. It's just, I grew up in the situation where I was part of a, Five. I only went to school for three years, but I was, there was only 5% other kids than the people who grew up on the island and stuff, or 5% white as compared to 95% the other way. I was young, so I'm sure I was racist. I'm from Virginia. <laughs> and I also experienced being a minority in my school for that tiny snapshot of time when I was young. I just think about it more these days because of how inequality is brought up a lot more and we're asked to wrap our minds around things in a different way.
0: I just wanted to clarify it for the listeners because they can't see what you look like. So you were basically the, you were the minority in a community. So more, it was a bit more sort of racism against you, even though you were the quote-unquote sort of white privileged people but not necessarily in that community
1: yeah in that community my dad had to go to prison because he was accused of stealing a boat that our friend and him like went to get one night and so he had to go to prison for six months and be apart from the family it's on his record he can't go back into the it took it took the anyway it's there's lots of interesting stories, and, and he had a lot of good stories from being in prison, too, and talking to people there. It was, it is what it is, you know?
0: It's your childhood. You don't know any different. No. I know. My sure. my, pa- yeah. my father's a priest, a, well, minister. I don't even know how to say it right. Reverend. And people are always like, oh, what's it like being a minister's kid? And I'm like, I, I don't know. That's the only life I know. Like, it's fine.
1: Exactly. You don't know any different. And everybody's looking at you like, yeah, they're yeah. waiting for the horns to come out.
0: <laughs> they came out. They, yeah, they went away. They, they, they come out in, in times.
1: We're, we all have hormones. We all go through rebe- rebellious phases, or maybe a certain percentage of us anyway. Yeah. But my dad's super good with wood and taking care of boats. And he really loves, he really loved to be on the water and just loved that whole thing. I think my folks were really ballsy going on a boat. I found out later we had like secret compartments for guns, and we might have sampled the forty five gallons of crucian rum that were smuggled back under a tank underneath the stairs in the boat a lot when I was in high school. You know,
0: it was really rum all you were smuggling,
1: I think so. yeah. Okay. Now, my dad liked crucian rum. He was part of a he bought into like a a store for boats, a marine store while we were in the Virgin Islands. And, you know, he did, he got involved with business and did stuff there. And my mom ran a bear boat business, a diving business as well. So I started diving when I was nine and certified when I was 10 and leading people on dives pretty much after that for the next, like since I was 10 to I think 11, you know, pretty young, but it was super fun. Spent a lot of time in the water and underneath the water, night diving and burst something in my head, whatever. like It was just great.
0: And then after that, you moved towards Washington, D.C.?
1: Tappahannock, which is on the Rappahannock River. So it's south. If you go out towards the water from D.C., it's on another little river south of the Potomac and a little finger lake area that's a place that my family had gone to school and the male counterpart of that school. So I was there for four years and, and then I went down to Florida to school and college and studied theater. I liked theater writing and art. And so I kept going with that there and sort of cut out writing and then cut out theater and just stayed with art. And then from there I transferred to Rhode Island school of design for painting although I knew I wanted to do sculpture. I did bronze casting, jewelry. I made some jewelry, pretty bad jewelry in Florida. Did photography, painting, sculpture, and then wanted to get like a serious education. So I went to RISD because I knew I'd get some good connections or something. And I didn't like their sculpture department. There was like this funny time in a sculpture department where they didn't have a head. And so it like looked like, RISD can look pretty cerebral anyway. And I dated some guy that was in the glass department. So somehow I got involved with glass and I have a lot of issues that stem from being with my family so closely that disappeared when it, when I started to work with glass. So I because glass needs a lot of concentration so anybody who has PTSD they can really bite into the complexity of handling working with other people to make a piece of art and the glass is so visceral that some people just have an instant connection and I don't think it's a super smart connection because glass is super hard but it's one where you suit and certainly fall in love and I did with glass so I that's where I started my romance with that material and education in it too. So, yeah.
0: Well, that's one thing yeah. I noticed about it because I was watching, what is it, Blown Away on Netflix? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very entertaining, some magnificent creations being made there. But one the thing that I noticed is like, I'm a photographer, and for years I didn't understand how, like, the, or the, I thought that artists were these solo people that sit in their studios and they pined away for days on end and did this thing by themselves. But, but I realized that glassblowing, it takes a minimum of two people to do pretty much anything really, yeah, you know? Yeah. And so it's a, it's much more of a collaborative communicative process to be able to do glassblowing because from what I understand at a bare minimum, One person is sort of working on the molten glass while the other might be moving it or blowing it or doing something else with it to, I don't even know what, you know, shape it, form it, whatever.
1: The usual Italian team is five five people on a piazza. So the way that I learned with glass and that I adapted so well is that because I loved theater... Like I don't like to be the actor because I don't like being looked at so much, but I do like being in the supporting role, which is funny, right? I don't know if you, if you're an introvert, extrovert, it's like, it's like you survive by people not seeing you when you're young, then when people see you, it's not so positive for you, even though you think it might be. So I like the teamwork it took to make a production happen, and that you could you didn't have to be that person in front of the camera, in front of the crowd. But I liked being even part of the chorus. You're capable of feeling that incredible energy that all those people looking at you can give you. And you understand about it coming in and how actors can really like use that energy to create magic. And I know that that can happen. And I've been on stage and done it myself. So with glass blowing, it was like this synergy of like, oh, partnership, you know, like I can work with people to do something, which I know how to do and I feel safer in a group. And so I really like formed a bond with my working buddies in school to, I mean, I'm still friends with the surviving one now. We see each other every week. But yeah, as far as the drama and everything, the hosts have blown away. Catherine Gray was in graduate school when I was undergraduate. And so I'm very familiar with her. And I'm so happy that she's out there as an example of glass blowing or glass sculpture, not just glass blowing, although this this centers on glass blowing. She's a sculptor that uses a lot of different materials, but she's so intelligent. And I'm happy that she's the one out there like helping to establish these boundaries for this reality show. So <laughs> it's just interesting. It's interesting how it's changed the lives of my friends if they're on the reality show. And even if they don't win, the controversy has brought them so, especially now where people are stuck inside and virtual life is the only life to a certain extent because we can't give up our TVs. And we're, a lot of us are stuck in places we didn't imagine we'd have to be in for so much time a day, you know, but it's all interesting. So RISD was great and and I got exposed to amazing, amazing glass workers. The heritage there is wonderful. I was working for my teacher, Michael Shiner. He would give me advice. So within my first year of working glass, I was assisting Dale Chihuly's team and Lena Talapietra at like a gig on the East Coast that they were doing. And being a woman in a male-dominated field, there's a lot of stuff you have to wade through and I just have to learn my lessons three times because I am a little I'm a little impaired when it comes to judgment sometimes yeah but I I battled my way through it cuz glass is so interesting I freaking love it it's like as a material it can do so much and you have to have so much control to be able to get what you want in a lot of ways and I think when I was younger I needed that to be in my life like that. And to spend so many years learning how to be a good glassblower. When we were young, we imagined we would be the most successful glass person that we knew. And it's interesting when you go through life, because the ideals that you set in your head at whatever age you're at, you still keep those ideals, they're part of you. It's not like you move past them. (laughs) So I laugh a lot, because he's like my friend, I can say like, oh, you know, like. It's really hard for me to get over wanting to be you, even though my work is in some ways a lot different. We still revere the same virtuosity of the Italian glassmaking. But he's, he's definitely an Italian guy, but not. Anyway, it's just funny, the layers of
0: life. You said so many things there. I've got to come back to all this. Okay, so
1: <laughs>
0: first of all, I want to understand... How, I I was actually the host of a television show about photography, a competition of photography. And I was always wondering how it affects people on sort of on the other side. So like, how does it feel having an art form that a lot of people maybe just didn't understand or weren't necessarily sort of super interested in or engaged in suddenly be on the sort of the tip of everybody's tongue because of something like this popular TV show blown away? Has it affected you? Have you seen any uh, your results of this or out with the changes?
1: Definitely with my friends who've been on it, you know, the show grooms them and in that they tell them, you know, after you go through this, your social media is going to explode. So you need to, and they kind of help them like clean up their websites, prepare things, prepare their minds because I mean, I, I know that some people get like death threats because they've, they've cut out the, a person's favorite person that was on there. You know, you have to steel yourself for the positive and negative. Yes, you'll, you'll get a lot of attention. And, but also as a woman, if you succeed at something, there's always a little friction about your success. So you have to be a little bit careful. But I think that as far as changing me, I can talk to people more about things. But you have to understand that they keep those people in a place where there's not very good assistance. Like the, It's like a pressure cooker that they put these people in. And, and they're working with a finite amount of time. They're getting no rest. And it's like that's not how you find out who's a good glassblower. That's how you make a good tv show. So, yeah, I mean it's about glass blowing, that's great. And people understanding the heartbreaks because there are a lot of heartbreaks and it's very hard for people to make a living with glass because it's so darn expensive. But you get like you fall in love with it and that's the and that's a big thing and I like that they show the passion of the people that are doing it instead of just focusing on like oh there's that thing they made it's so perfect and lovely because with glass blowing there with the male domination there's also like a sportsmanship takes a lot of strength to do it and i think that that kind of gets broken up in those because they have like a good gender balance at least i like how they follow the the people and learn their stories but it's like a a weird slice of glass pie it's not like any reality show it's it's something under pressure or dramatic it's glass isn't always about the drama like that's what you want to avoid is drama while you're working although some people are a little more prone to it than others so
0: that's in every creative field actually that's in every life (laughs) there's always the drama queens but okay, yes. you brought up sort of like gender roles and how like if glassblowing is male dominated and you are not male. Uh, give me some more insight on that. Well, I just wanna clarify, A, I'm male. <laughs> B, I don't know anything about the glassblowing industry. Like about as much as I know is a few friends of mine over the years have played with it, but I don't, act- you were literally like the first glass blower or are you a glass blower even for that like what is what do you call yourself
1: Well, I try for the sculptor thing okay. because I have I haven't been good at taking care of my body over the years and you really need to be an athlete to get the longevity out of it but it's cuz it's during it's it's hard to stand on concrete and do a lot of lifted twisting and stuff that's one-sided. I became a yoga teacher in 2007 to try to help me balance out my skeleton, which bends a certain way now because everybody turns to the right to work when you're at the bench. And it's like, you know, I'm going to be crippled for life later on, but I did love to be in the hot shop, but I, I can't carry as much weight. I'm not as strong as other people. My skeleton's not put together the best. So (laughs) runs in my family, like a lot of dislocations and stuff like that. So, but I love glass and with working in glass for so many years, I can now become the director of what's happening and I can get other people to do the hands-on stuff. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I I miss it a lot. I don't blow that much and I have a hard time doing that every day now, but I used to do it seven days a week for years. So. Okay.
0: Okay. Well, I will try my best to remember to call you a glass sculptor instead of a yeah, glass
1: whatever. But I I can blow glass, and with glass blowing, there's soft glass and hard glass. Hard glass is borosilicate, and you can think of that more as scientific glass making, Pyrex, or also you have to think that is also what pipe makers work with. So for the legalization of marijuana in America, has kind of cracked open this rebel glass rebel It's these people who make bongs and pipes and and specifically like two hundred thousand dollar pipes and stuff that's that's been the hot trend in glass for the last seven or eight years it has a lot to do with the money laundering and and drugs and and art art has always been used as money laundering but also this outsider art that's grown and I mean, you have to have good seals and good good habits to be able to make bongs and things. So I've actually taken lessons to work with Boro. And I specifically love because I studied a little furniture design, this and that. So I like lathes. I wanted to learn how to use a glass lathe. I was in Michigan for a while. And in Michigan, there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies. And over the years, they would have in-house scientific glass workers so that they could create all the stuff they needed in the lab but they would job that stuff out more and more that those people kind of band together now when they're older and they teach these young pipe makers how to work the glass because if you don't have good seals and scientific good habits it won't work so anyway so there's that section of glass but the male domination domination in the field i mean i think that just comes from europe And in particular, Venice and Italy. In Europe, there's people from both genders that work glass, and in Italy too. But in traditionally on Murano, like uh, women don't do that so much. So, and I had a Fulbright to be, I was in Italy for a year studying sculpture on Murano. And I had people look at my pictures and be like, you didn't make that. Like, you know, and I just keep a low profile. And I've learned that over the years. It's like you have to prove yourself over and over in the glass world because there's this team of people. They all want to work together. There's lots of testosterone out there. And as a woman, it's like you don't have that endless amounts of testosterone or you come from a family where you have high testosterone. You want to challenge and like be in the mix. A lot of people settle down into group workings because you want to get together with a group of people and they know what you want to do. And you guys make that choreography to make your artwork. You get it down. You want to work with them forever because that team's working good, right? So a lot of teams work that way, or you lose a member to go do something. You bring somebody else in. Chihuly Inc is a factory. They work with a lot of different teams, but as a, if you want to be a successful artist, it's good to, have like so a lot of people marry their teammate. A lot of people just have a good friendship and, and come to work with those people. You have your own studio, so you invite people in. You you maintain that progress forward. And And men are more comfortable with men in a lot of those situations. So it's hard to break in as a woman, I think. There weren't a lot of people who did that before, but they don't really stay as contributing members of that glass blowing world forever you know
0: okay so i understand how that could be an issue in the what's it called foundry forgery what's the right word for the
1: oh like in the hot shop
0: in the hot shop okay i understand how that could be an issue in the hot shop now but i also want to know beyond that so like when you go to let's see, a gallery or to have an exhibition or to meet a collector or a curator or anything like this. Does gender play a role at that point of the industry?
1: The gallery owners that gave me opportunities the most were women. I'm single. I've never been married. I went through boyfriends, but sometimes gallery owners would see that as a danger because you could decide to have children and you would stop making work. So why invest in an artist that's going to do that? I had that explained to me by gallery owners and their employees as well. And so it's like, you know, when there's an old school thought, it's you get a thought in your head, you learn something, you have an ideal when you're young. It's hard to erase that in a lot of ways, like racism, hard to erase beliefs that we've held for our whole lives or whatever. Systems, supporting systems and then yeah just getting along like how what's considered getting along how much how much can you show of your real self in a situation like that's why you're friends with the people you cut your teeth with sometimes because they really know who you are and i think because i suffer from ptsd it makes it harder for me to get along with people when it's an abusive situation and a lot of the European way of teaching and the way I was taught is like, you get yelled at to be taught. And that doesn't, but I, as a teacher, I use that same method even though it doesn't work for me because that's what I was taught. And and I never went to school when there was sensitivity training. Like when I was in grade school, when I was in kindergarten, No, no one ever talked about anybody else's emotions. And so, a lot of the I'm only 52 okay but I really feel like my communication skills and the way they the way people are taught to communicate now it's it's like something you really have a vocabulary you have to really bite into to be able to survive even I'm a workshop teacher more than I am a university teacher although I have done that for a semester even in workshops the It's just a bit of a minefield for, I don't want to call myself old, but someone who's learned a totally different way of working to be very considerate and loving. Although I try to be compassionate and kind in my daily life to a high degree because I am sensitive myself, but I can also pull over my cloak of fuck you because you need it when you're with a bunch of guys who are all worked up about something. Like it's, I grew up with very few female cousins or siblings, so I was used to that kind of fight.
0: Okay, wait, I'm gonna clarify that or I'll expand on that. I was teaching in the United Arab Emirates as a white American man, I was teaching Muslim women art at the university level i had to put on a facade for that because a a a classroom of 20 women is as difficult i would imagine as a group of unruly men uh towards a woman as well so i understand that issue like i for many years i took on the the sort of the persona of like i don't want to say arrogant but like sort of like the the, the teacherly way like like the i t- i did the socratic method kind of an idea where i i tried to push them to figure out the answers like i hate teachers that spoon feed and coddle students i think that's a waste of an education time but that's just my personal opinion i never yelled though that's a bit that's cuz i worked for like government universities if i i guess if i was workshops i might have yelled that would have been kind of fun but I'm interested in the fact that you run workshops because for years, people have always been like, Hey Matt, when are you going to run a workshop? I'd love to take a workshop with you. And I'm like, I don't want to do fucking workshops. I mean, don't get me wrong. Love the idea of running workshops. The act of running a workshop, magnificent. What I don't like about it is the marketing, the public relations, the all the other things that basically you have to attract. It's not only do you have to be, skilled and talented in your medium then you have to be a skilled and talented teacher and then on top of that you have to be a skilled and talented marketing public relations person good coordination good business skills all these other things and that just seems like too much for me
1: i have to say in response to that that when i teach it's at an educational place like works with craft it's taught a lot workshops in the summertime so you you have penland or haystack or pilchuck ask you to teach and they take care of all the other stuff. I mean, more and more, you have to do the publicity to draw people in. But they take care of all that for you. Because as an artist, you, that's an issue for artists. Don't don't bother doing that. I do have friends that do do that so that they get all the money. But they do it on a smaller scale. And they are like some of the best glassblowers in the world. So, you know, you can... Organize that yourself, or your wife organizes it for you. Actually, is more like it. But usually, you let the institution take the brunt of that.
0: Well, and I've always wondered that. Okay, so like, if you do it on your own and you keep a hundred percent of the revenues from the workshop, versus let's say going working with a uh, institution and the institution, I don't know, theoretically, I've never done one. So theoretically, what they take fifty percent?
1: No talk of that. They just have they just pay you a certain amount.
0: Oh, okay. Sorry. They don't
1: they don't talk about how much money they get. So they have to run the facility and sometimes they're multi multi not dimensional multimedia teaching facility and stuff. So all the money maybe doesn't go equally depending on because you probably have a teaching fee and then you have a studio fee, like what stu- like a metals or glass or paper, everything costs different and You know, there's, they have their systems for figuring things out.
0: Right. But I'm wondering like down the end of it. So like, cause like, okay, so let's say you freelance and do your own workshops and you get to keep hundred percent of all the income. Do you earn in the end, sort of like do you earn more money, even though you might have less students than if you work with an institution that gives you a flat fee.
1: It depends on your shop and how many people you can fit into your shop. So my friends, they have a smaller shop. So they would just have like four students tops. But then I have friends who have built bigger shops thinking they can run private classes. So they would have, but schools, they only have three stations or four stations to work on or seven stations in different areas. So not all of them are on the same. So a lot of classes is classes are orientated around how much time can be given because the it's it's so expensive to heat the glass and melt the glass and so it's all about like getting the maximum amount of time to each person and fair to the teaching assistants who don't get paid anything really and you know how to how to take care of everyone in the class a lot of it's like that's up to the teacher but yeah i don't know if i answered anything
0: not really, uh, not not. Or you didn't answer my question. You answered a different question, so that's fine.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not super linear going through a cleanse. Although I'm not in the strong part right now, I backed out of it a bunch, so I wouldn't be too.
0: A cleanse? You mean like a uh...
1: unmired, unmired from reality? <laughs> but just it's a restricted eating, like no sugar, no alcohol, no wheat, no
0: dairy, no. Yeah, there's. God, what do you eat? Like that sounds like my whole diet.
1: Oh, lots of greens, lots of greens and make your own food and not get processed food too much. And, and then you can go meatless for a while and you can go like not solid for a while too. And just taking the end of 2020 and squeezing all the frustrations out for a little while.
0: It's a bit, yeah. So, okay. So. In relevance to the quarantines and all that. So now, wait, you're in Washington, right? Yes. Washington State, just to be clear on that.
1: Yes, Seattle, Washington State, uh, Pacific Northwest. And so I'm on, I can look down onto the Puget Sound from where I live right now. Luckily, I bought a house December 31st, 2020, and moved out of my studio, which was fine, but it was next to the baseball and football places of worship and has become more and more isolated and funky and there's we have a large homeless population in Seattle and no I bought a house and I've been working through trying to renovate during quarantine and and I uh, get my studio up and running squeeze 3,000 square feet worth of stuff into 1,000 square 1500 square feet it's it's kind of like a sausage process, but it's it's been really good and I have a garden which makes everything so wonderful.
0: All right, let's move on to some other t- sort of more artistic, creative topics. First of all, I want to just jump back to a thing. Bongs, do you make them? Nope. Okay, great, moving on, next topic.
1: <laughs> they're, they're tough, I'll tell you. The, the last time I tried to make one was in art school And just when we were putting the spout on, a sixth grade class came to visit and watched us do it. And after it's like tough to make it right, okay? And it's not the right kind of glass. Our soft glass won't take heat like the hard glass does. So I did not go down that route because I'm trained at Rhode Island School of Design and stuff. Although I have friends that make bongs for. Barney's and they went to RISD
0: I knew of a lady glass blower who made glass dildos like yeah I mean I'm all for it whatever works for you
1: oh yeah I got friends from RISD who do that too I listened to Italian masters tell me stories about how when they were kids they made hollow and Murano for the ladies so you can put the warm water in it
0: nice okay
1: which is funny but that's a, that's a time-honored glass use.
0: Absolutely. I'm all, yeah, I support it 100%. <laughs> okay. Uh, I work on paper, so and I'm always bitching about how you know, I never have enough space or ability to store my work well. I am utterly fascinated. How do you store glass other than very carefully?
1: We had a big earthquake here in 2001. I was in grad school or in Italy at that time. And many of my friends who have beautiful studios and had all their work out lost a lot of their work. I have made some larger installation pieces starting back to 1995. I have been storing crates, giant crates for years. Okay. Okay. You know, decades. So that's almost three decades in like three years, four years. It'll be three decades. I've been storing huge crates. So you put your glass in a safe thing. So you got your double walled cardboard and then you've got foam. Or if you're shipping, you've got to double box it as well. My work, I think a lot now, uh, well, that's not true. Yeah. And in the last, 10 years or so, I've been, or 15, making larger scale work means you have to have a crate for it to go in. And then you stack in crates, and oh, it becomes a little bit crazy. And it's difficult to take care of all that stuff. So you have to go through it and make decisions about what to keep and what to smash because you can't afford to store it all. And if you're an artist, you're a pack rat, that's a problem too. So you have to have a lot of square footage. So, living in the center of Seattle right now is not the smart idea. Where I live now, I have basically 1,500 square feet for myself and my studio and my business. So, I have a 300 square foot storage space that is because I started moving after COVID started, I couldn't get rid of a lot of stuff. So, my storage space is full of books and clothes because I still haven't gotten to them (laughs) to get rid of them because it was really scary in the beginning, COVID. So you didn't know what you could do. Now Goodwill is open and accepting things. And so it's, it's better. But as an artist, you do have to think about your babies. Like I have no fruits of my body babies, but I do have lots of sculpture babies. And you know, that's why a lot of people get a container and put it on their property. But I don't have a big property, but I'm planning to build more storage containers outside to put stuff in. I have so much packing material. and Yeah, so if you have paper, I finally did get a a file drawer for all my drawings, and I've done printmaking too, digital printmaking, super fun, and my projects and my maps of pieces, and it just felt like... I finally arrived to get a file cabinet, like a file cabinet for my drawings.
0: I'm bitterly envious of you. I still don't have a filing cabinet. I want one. Well, sadly, actually, a filing cabinet won't work because some of my work is twice the size of a filing cabinet. Right. Quite large. Yeah. So. But some of it will. I, I, There are filing cabinets that exist that can fit most of my work, but some won't fit.
1: And, and then there goes another issue, too, because the way that you, when you become an artist or you start identifying as an artist, you start getting ideas about where your life should be at different time periods, which you're laughing at. And I know it's like, we thought we'd be here, here, here. And like, well, I'm still preparing for the retrospective. So I'm keeping all of my, you know, you have to winnow down how much stuff you keep about yourself. And I'm not good at banging my own drum, but it's like, I've got boxes of invitations and different things that who the hell cares about. But just in case the Renwick needs it, which is a high craft library.
0: But it's interesting you say that because I uh, previously on the podcast, I had a, um, a guest who did legacy planning. Like that was her career to help artists plan their legacy. and from our conversation I was just like fuck man I I actually have to keep more stuff because like I've gotten rid of too much but like it's really made me think a little bit more about like at least keeping uh, keeping the best of around you know even if I just put it in storage and don't talk look at it for decades but I I don't want to get rid of it because it was a very interesting concept that she talked about which is as living practicing artists it's our job to keep all of our stuff so whether these are like journals or sketches or whatever you know it doesn't even mean the finished piece because those things in a best case scenario you know if the legacy plan goes well will end up in a a library or a museum's collection, which will then make it so that future scholars will be able to do more research on you and your place in the canon. But if none of that exists, future scholars can't research you. So therefore you won't be placed into the canon. So like the way to be part of sort of art history is to basically create a a set of uh, of material objects that can be passed on for future scholars. And I love that idea.
1: Well, I have to think that the first artist that made me really think about things was Robert Mapplethorpe. I went to see a show of his with some friends of mine who love him so much at the Getty in L.A., like the new and improved. I went in 2000. It looks so different than even a few years ago. But in reading about the different stages of his life as an artist, like his lover was wealthy and his lover passed before he did. So Robert Maplethorpe was able to create an entity that took care of his artwork after his death with this money. So when I go places, I can see Robert Maplethorpe's work because there's, there's a foundation that that takes care of this work and sends it out when it's right. So like, oh my gosh, how can I, in my family, like there's, I have no offspring. So my art's my offspring. Do I isolate my money from going back into my family at my death and you know, purchase enough land that I can afford a foundation that I can have my work taken care of so that it has a voice posthumously. And people, because I don't talk about a lot of my, how my life fits into my work completely. I was told never to talk about weakness, especially with, with your artist statement, you don't talk about weakness, like, you know, So there's like a whole, it was, you know, like you want to go with strong things, not like it's interesting, like the kind of indoctrination that you get. And for me, I think a lot of my stuff is personal. It'll take me a long time to untangle myself enough to be able to really talk about it. So I'm looking forward to seeing how I mature as an artist and and how my communication skills ramp up. But but sorry I meandered, getting back to Maplethorpe. I really got to see that if you want to have a lasting effect in your craft or in your, you know, that making sure your work doesn't just crumble into nothingness like I have seen happen to my friends who are geniuses and pass away like their family doesn't know what to do and then the work gets lost. And it's like, no, 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 you need I keep every sketchbook, I keep all the announcements, I keep all my acceptance letters, I keep all my rejection letters, all that stuff can't be thrown away. And I feel like I'm dragging it around to some degree, but I'm also like, this is my way to the future. I send my catalogs each time I make them or they're made to the Corning Museum of Glass. They have a fantastic library there. Also in Venice, there's a new foundation there that is started by collectors in Switzerland, and they are accepting master's papers, like a glass master's papers and designer's papers, usually not the famous glass, usually as a designer and a master. So. The designers are focused on more, but to, to receive a family's papers, that's like huge. But they are trusting it to this foundation because it's not run by Italians. And that they will take care of this legacy because Venice has a huge legacy in class.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I... Prior to discussing this with this previous guest, I, I had never, it was Amy Potsick was the lady that, did it, that is the legacy planner. I had never thought of that, or like I, I, guess, I guess I would have assumed that somebody else would just sort of take control over these things. And I didn't realize how much of an active role as a living artist that I need to take in that legacy, for lack of a better word
1: legacy planning they call it for artists
0: i love it i'm all for it and and i'm like i'm even doing stupid things like with the podcast i now have a book and like i write write my notes in the same book and like in the book i put the name of the guest and i put the date that i that i do the the conversation so that like they can see all my notes you know later on even if we didn't get to talk about the topic i had the note that i wanted to talk about a topic I mean, I'm getting a, a kind of OCD about it. It's kind of weird. I I shouldn't be doing that. But anyways. COVID. <clears throat> COVID. Oh, uh, no. Why? No. Like, it's so funny. <laughs> Everybody keeps talking about like, oh, COVID affected this, infected that, and all that. I'm like... You know what? I'm an artist. Like, I've always been a recluse. And so, like, COVID just means you all are now living my lifestyle. Like, I've always been (laughs) like this. (laughs) Nothing's changed for me. The only difference is I'm not going to art openings. That's about it. Other than that, I'm pretty much living the same life I lived before COVID. But as I said, that's my sad story. So. you mentioned at your house you said that you have your your living space you have your studio and your business is your business selling and and whatever exhibiting your artwork or do you have another business
1: yeah it's just making art you know my art making business it's you know, through taxes and understanding how to separate my life you know that part is part of me so my garage is not for cars it's for my kilns and things I'm used to living in my own studio so like I have altered my living room and I had an extra bedroom I took down the wall separating it from the hallway I put up plywood walls there I put plywood walls up in my living room and I I would prefer like I like big open spaces so I can have different projects With the PTSD comes the OCD tendencies. I also have a really hard time staying in a linear line. So if I get frustrated with one thing, I want to have another thing right there to work on. So I like having five projects out and being able to ping pong in between things really helps to allow my creativity to flow better. So it means I don't get a living space as much, but... With my purchase of the house, it was a little bigger than I could afford. So I turned my basement into an apartment and I'm currently renting that out. Although I don't know how much longer that will happen. And because COVID is so pernicious, and the air system is shared, I'll probably just, (sighs) this is a big leap to like cross my fingers and say, okay, I'll just pay for the whole thing. But I've been investing in the last Five, six, seven years with making larger scale work of a higher price point because to survive through hard times, you have to. uh, Having different price points in your work means you don't put all your eggs in the same basket. I'm a bit of a nervous Nelly in that regard. With wanting to do five or six different series, it helps if I'm working on a piece for 300 hours. If I have a piece I can work on for 20 hours, and then another piece that I can work on for two hours. So I feel like I'm making progress somewhere with jewelry, making progress somewhere with finishing a small piece, making progress with the big piece over a larger amount of time. Yes. It just works better for me.
0: It sounds like an incredibly logical business plan. It makes complete sense. I, mean, I noticed, okay, so on your website, which I will link to in the in the show notes, that you have five galleries that sell your work so like but you make everything from jewelry to large-scale installations like how do you manage like basically what i'm getting at is like you don't seem to be selling through your own website or basically you're on your own you sell through a gallery or some sort of other business um how do you manage to to sort of i don't know you you know cobble together a living out of that
1: well i do have a website to sell from, but that is called KateRoadsDesign.com because it's for smaller pieces and it's part of a larger plan. So it's not I'm the idea in the last 10 years or 20 years is that, oh, if you have if you make high art, high priced art, people don't want to see that you make lower priced art. When I have visitors to my studio and I have my jewelry out and my art out, I have Usually men ask me, like, why do you have that stuff out there? It cheapens your work. And and I said, well, you know, you're not a woman. So women wear art. I made my small pieces. I've always made jewelry. But when I started making my large-scale pieces, people couldn't afford them, but they loved them. So I started making things that had lower price points so that people could still get something that would remind them of that big piece that they loved because that's how my brain works. And I enjoy being able, yeah. So it's a a lot of, I spend a lot of time on my work. Some pieces I want to spend less time, some pieces more time. The price is different accordingly. And these days it's being, I've been told that it's better to link my shop to my website because we're so virtual. We want to see what everybody can do now all in one. One thing. And so I'm working up, I'm cooking up what I need to do. And then I'm going to talk to my web designer, who's my friend, and we're going to be changing things. But it's like I dropped my blog. I used to do a blog because that was really popular back in the day. Now I don't do it anymore. We still have to get rid of those links on the website. There's always something to clean up. If I can add and subtract myself, I can have some fun. But if I need someone else to do it, I usually wait a longer time and then lump do that and pay for it at the same time.
0: But. We all do that, yeah. But okay, so okay, something I'm interested in though. Okay, so you make large scale expensive work. You make small scale jewelry, which I have to admit, looking at them, they're not that they're not that cheap. I mean, I understand they're on the lower price point, but they're definitely not cheap. Um. So well. Yeah. They're not. I'm just, it's just a fact. It's, I mean,
1: no, there's a there's a good reason for that. Because yeah, I mean, <laughs> it takes takes a long time. It's a specialized thing. I have specialized tools. I am not questioning um, your Every time prices. you touch the glass, you, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, but it is a it is like if I make something for one hundred and twenty dollars, that's a much different than making something for sixty five thousand dollars. You know, right, so which is
0: what I'm trying to get to here. Okay, so. Over the course of, your, let's say, let's say a year in your business, like what percentage of your sales is the large scale and what percentage is small scale? And then I'm assuming there's maybe a mid-range set of works that you also do. So like somewhere in the middle, like basically like is 50% small scale as far as your income and then like 25 and 25 for the, the, the really, you know, large scale and mid, mid range, like, so like. How, basically like how much are people buying the different ranges?
1: I'm just going to pull up my profit and loss standard for last year.
0: That's amazing. But you last, don't need to be that specific. Last
1: fiscal year. Well, I mean, cause I can't, every year is different. And what's good for me is if I can sell a large piece, I don't really make much money. So, but I would say, so so jewelry last year, I made close to 4,000 Yeah. sales for sculpture, more like 40,000.
0: Okay. Now wait, is that like mid range sculptures or large sculptures or saying lump, lumped together as one?
1: Let's see. 9,000. So one of them is if I can sell my, my work myself, I can keep a hundred percent. Sure. If I sell through a gallery, I only get 50%.
0: Such is the system, yes.
1: Such is the system. So like last year, I had a sale for a mid-sized wall piece. So that was a $40,000 sale. I get $20,000 for that. I get... So out of that $40,000, $20,000 was from a large-scale piece. Like $9,000 was from a vessel, which is kind of a big vessel. And then, you know, the $4,000 for jewelry And I had a a moving sale. So there's some pieces some vessels and smaller stuff that I sold. So nothing like that big, really. In in in-state retail, less than 2000. You know, it just it just depends. Like some galleries are good at selling some things for a while and then they get a different owner and then they're no good at that anymore or. You're trying a new gallery or you're... But wait, hold on. Now everybody... I
0: was fascinated. You just said in-state sales was... You said zero? Is that right?
1: Oh well, in-state sales, it's like maybe 2,000 for vessels and larger pieces or 4,000. I sell stuff in Europe too. So I've been trying to focus a little bit on the European market because I like the idea of being internationally renowned. And I was worried I'd have to leave the country at a certain point. So I wanted to start expanding my range and just to make it a softer landing in case I had to go.
0: No, the reason why I ask about that, though, is because I've sort of learned this thing over a series of my own life mistakes and career mistakes that I've made, which is that I always, I, in the beginning, I thought um, you, you, where you live should be where your collector base and your exhi- exhibiting base and all this kind of stuff would be. And I have, over the course of my career, I've realized where you live has almost nothing to do with who buys your work or where they buy your work. Like, I mo- most of my collectors are in Chicago, Illinois, New York City. Uh, Germany and France. And I've lived in none of those four places ever in my life.
1: Yes, a lot of my sculpture ends up in Florida. My sense, of, and I do a lot of big seaweed, which isn't like a giant thing in Florida, but the fluidity of my work, people who love the sun and light and color and being close to beautiful places tend to have the money to and want to put the work there. I Pacific Northwest, I'm way better, I used to be way better sales in New York than because I'm classically trained from RISD, I think that's the European flavor of my education. And so in the Pacific Northwest where I live, it's like wild, wild west as far as the art history for this area. It's difficult in the glass community if you don't fit into the good old boy system, sometimes you're left on your own. Like I'm not married into the good old boy system. So and I suffer from memory issues. So I don't remember people's names very well. And
0: Matt. That my is my a, name is Matt.
1: Yeah, thanks, okay. Matt. I it's good. I you know, name tags are good for the first couple of days. Just just joking. Workshop, workshop talk. But And I think that makes it harder for me to remember the people that have bought my work. I remember how people make me feel, not how they look or their names. And so it's better if a gallery can do the talking for me, but slowly, like I just try to keep integrity in what I do and how I treat people and how I treat clients. And it's very difficult to do in the art world because once you get involved with a gallery, like they should have a part of you But I broke away from my gallery like seven years ago because I felt they didn't give a crap about me. And because how many hundreds of artists do you have to, and unless you're somebody who really sells things yourself or your work sells really well, then it's hard to get attention from a gallery. So I didn't feel like they were supporting me. So I had to do my own thing, which I don't know how smart that is, but. So I try to have my space for people to come and look at work. I have galleries come through that represent me. Like you said, I have five galleries. I mean, now it's a virtual world, getting virtual tours. and But I'm so lucky, I think, because I have a few years before we'll actually start coming into each other's houses again, I think. And I need that time to slowly turn this house into a functioning workspace where I have dirty space I have office space I have jewelry space I have space for other things I have workspace we can transform and it's it's not exactly what I want but I I love improving the garden and improving the way things look and bringing it up to a vision and who knows then maybe I'll move on somewhere else that's better and further away or I don't
0: know Oh yeah I'm looking forward to buying a plot of land outside the city and building some like big place with multiple barns for my wife and I to have in different locations and stuff like it'll be great fun but oh yeah okay you mentioned earlier and you sort of brought it up again career goals changing over the course of our lives so like I remember being a kid and my goal was to have a retrospective at the Guggenheim that was my by, by mm-hmm. the age of 50. Mm-hmm. That I was planning on it at the age of 50. My friend Billy, who was my childhood friend, he was uh, working in film at the time. And so he was going to make a documentary about me that was also going to be on exhibit at the same time. Because we've known each other since we were like two years old. So he would be able to you know, create a great documentary. Needless to say, I'm um, two, three years away from 50 and I am nowhere near a guggenheim retrospective and of course billy is also not working in film anymore so that whole goal is sort of shot to hell so like how did you you know so my and of course mine was also like to be a superstar like you wanted to be like the pinnacle of a movement and you wanted to be the representation of a of a time period and all this kind of stuff and you wanted to all this kind of crap and now i'm like no i just i just want to make enough money to continue to do what I want to do, and I'll be perfectly happy. How have your goals changed?
1: (laughs) I remember making a choice uh, when I was, I did college for eight straight years after high school. So I remember in my first college thinking I should leave here and go and do art because I meant to do that. And then I thought, I'll just stay here with my friends and like finish this passage of life with them, and then I'll go on to do my art. And you know, this is what I want to be—this painter. Or you know, I was in Florida dreaming dreams at a mediocre liberal arts school, and and then when I went to RISD, I looked at my choices. I dated some glassblower. Oh, I should tell my friend Thurman Statham how he changed my life. And I thought to myself, glass is very rarefied and small as an art medium. And when I look at painting, painting is so big. Like, what do you want to do, Kate? Do you want to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond? And I don't know if that affected my choice, but it has. And I went with, I think I was in love with glass. It was just going to happen. So yeah, I went with the glass and I, in the business longevity secures you a place. I think I'm always bewildered that I'm included with some of my peers and some of the people that I worked for and respected so much when I moved to town, I feel very fortunate to be able to show work with them and to be in this group of artists that work with glass that have accolades from this part of the country. As an artist, you know that the way you feel about yourself and your position in the art world changes monthly. Like, <laughs> as a woman growing up in a patriarchal system, as I get older, it's really harder for me to hold on to the idea that I'm this incredible artist. Nobody else thinks like me. Like it's it's just harder and harder to hold a crisp artist ego together, you know? And I think that's good for me. And learn humility and I see if you can't keep that artist persona together, you can disappear very easily. And you have to be drawn towards the light to a certain extent. I'm very competitive and I feel that way about being chosen but or successful, but yet I'm passed up a lot for things that I think are successful. And then I go into my studio and I take these slices of glass and I put them in my kiln and I take them out of my kiln and I wash them and I think, oh my God, I've, least I've done one thing to move my life forward that feels good I've like made these things beautiful and now I put them in a jar and I put them on the shelf and there they are and it's about creating beauty I think in my life that makes me happy harmony and beauty I feel so much that life is hard for me to understand and to move through in a successful passion, a pattern, or like, I see my guy friends, and they like, Oh, get a girlfriend, and they're in love, and they have a family, and they're an artist. And, and it just doesn't seem to be for women, there's this, it's not the same kind of path. So I, I don't know, I just, I try to follow my curiosity as a person. I volunteer a lot at the Seattle Aquarium, or I used to I look at plankton, I talk about the science of the ocean, how important algae is, and seaweed. My life has flowed in different areas, in different ways, and you can't help that that happens to you. And I think it's finding happiness becomes more important to me in my work, and outside of my work, because I think sometimes I am good at slogging through things or glass people are masochistic. So it's like, I put myself in a position, you are who you are. You find out through your friendships, you put yourself in a position where you are overextended or you put yourself in a position where you can focus on yourself. And again, in the patriarchy, women are not taught to focus on themselves. So it's like bringing yourself back to that navel gazing (laughs) to make work and to communicate whatever emotional thing I'm trying to communicate at the time, you know, I think it's a good reason to keep going. And that's a, as an artist, you you just have to allow your, your vision of who you think you're going to be in the twenties with who you are, who you've become, what you've gravitated towards in your life. And, you know, sometimes you have, I've been very fortunate through my family's support, I can keep sleeping in a bed and I can, I can still follow my dreams artistically to a certain extent. So I can take, I don't take risks as much as I used to because once you have a good thing, then you keep going at it. So you see a lot of glassblowers, once they've developed that thing that they do, then they do that thing for a long time because Gosh, it took so long to learn how to do that, and a lot of R and D and development. And you add new things into your repertoire slowly. You experiment, you test it out. You try not to like spend twenty thousand dollars on one thing at the same time. And then it being two thousand and eight, and then you're in debt for ten years. You know, you try not to do those things, but sometimes you don't know what's happening. So as you get older, you try to be savvy and back yourself up. I guess that's why I have like a different objects that I make at different price points, like whatever thing screams at me at the time that's going to help support me and keep me following my life's path. I want to do that. But learning how to reach out for the things that you don't have in your life or the things you're not good at to help you to get to your further dreams, that's something that I think happens over time. You really have to be open to people helping you because as an artist, you can't pay people to do stuff so easily. There's so much to learn out there right now about how to survive and how to communicate and how to have the right website and how, well, you can't put shipping on it anymore. Shipping has to be included. So you have to raise your price. You got to tell everybody about it. You got to, there's a lot of communication that goes on with creating uh, identity as an artist and as a artist that sells their own work to create faith in that from collectors that they, that you have integrity and that you'll do the right thing. I think it just takes a lot of determination and commitment.
0: Indeed. All right. I got two last questions. Sort of wrap this up here. First one would be, do you have the names of three other creative people that somehow you think are worthy of a little bit more attention? Boyd Sagiki.
1: He's currently teaching in Japan right now, but as a, he's one of my best friends and he's a very polite Hawaiian man who does not bang his own drum, but he is one of the finest glassblowers out there and his design ability is like banging. So Him and his wife, Lisa Zerkowitz, have the design line, Two-Tone. So you can find, oh my goodness, I'm going to muck that up, aren't I? Should I look it up so I'm going to say the right thing?
0: Sure, you're welcome to look it up. I will put links to all these people if I can find them online.
1: Two-Tone Studios is their name. Another unsung person that, let's see. It's like I want to, he's male, so I'll say female and my my friend Jennifer Caldwell. She's we talk a lot. She's a shy person too. So it's like this difficulty with putting yourself out there. So if if you're a shy person, you know the
0: irony of of a shy person that you talk to a lot, but it's okay.
1: Well, no, we don't talk a, a ton, but you learn in the glass community who you trust and who you don't trust because you learn that. So then the ones who you do trust, you trust. And we survive by sharing information. Oh, this vendor's not working anymore. That person's not trustworthy. We have to like, know what's happening in our community. So you get your, your people who have the finger on the pulse, and then you share your information with them. And then everybody tries to help each other out. As far as like, we're talking about, yeah, yeah, I'm not part of the good old boy club, but I am part of the I would say, good old girl club, good old girl club. There is a glass good old girl club. The new girl club. Yeah, the new girl club. There's not a ton of members at my age bracket, but there's a fair amount. And I think we've learned here to be generous with our information with each other because the more you hold in and try to keep secret, the more you stifle as well. Like you have to think of it like a tree you have to, a tree branches get so, I have to do a lot of pruning coming up. You know, you need to let the light in. you need to let air come past and, and, and being in an educational system as an artist, you're so fortunate to have the sounding box of your peers and your teachers, but in real life, you have to make that for yourself. You have to choose those people from your medium or the people that you really, really you know, respond to, and you need to make them part of your community. I've been Kiki Smith's TA. I've been to her place. I, she knows me by name. Like, you know, there's people out there that you can rely on. You just have to believe in yourself. And I know it's hard to do through a lot of distractions these days, but yeah.
0: Okay. Do you have a third artist?
1: So there's two Who's an unsung artist? It's like all my besties, but I'm trying to think of
0: I feel bad calling another her female un- unsung artist, but like an artist that you once you wish the public would notice more.
1: And then there's Karen Willenbrink Johnson. She's just got a huge soul. And she's an amazing, amazing teacher and wonderful person. And for so many people who their life's work. And happiness is being in the hot shop I feel so bad for these days. Like, her She really shines in that regard. And her technical abilities are whew, like no other. I have friends that are definitely sung, so that's for sure.
0: But they've already got the attention. I don't need to give them more attention.
1: <laughs> well, and some are good at accepting the attention and using it to further their career. And some aren't, you know, just aren't. So...
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last little bit is I always ask for, you've already given a lot of advice, but I generally sort of end it with asking for advice as well. So any advice you have not given yet that you think that maybe the next generation or somebody that wants to follow in your footsteps might uh, benefit from?
1: Of course, I have to say that stubbornness is a virtue to a certain extent. If you have a vision in your head of how you think your art should be, it's always good to work to get that out there. Please don't take one person's opinion to the moon. You really need to listen to your gut and yourself. Of course, if someone is more educated, you try to go down that pathway with what they're saying to understand what they're saying, but you don't need to adopt that as your motto or creed for the rest of your life. You know, Making art is supposed to be a happy thing. Don't let it be something that rules your life in a negative way. Because the whole concept of the artist in the ivory tower suffering for their art is not a healthy one. And you can see social media has changed that for so many people. So now it's a healthy blend of what you show and what you don't. And keeping some things private for yourself. I guess that would be and and to love yourself and take care of yourself like that's the most important thing is to not sacrifice so much for your art that you don't have anything left for you and good luck with that if you really love what you do.
0: Marvelous. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Matt, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much and keep the East Coast vibe going on wherever you are. That that like I'm just talking about our background, common background, with spending some time in the same area of D.C., Arlington, and there's a lot of '80s stuff for sure. Watching Life of Brian for the first time, watching like so many, being super into, what was it, Phil Collins? But was, he was still in the band. Genesis was huge, and. Mm-hmm. It was a great time yeah. of my life, very confused. I think most of my life's been pretty confusing. Yeah, so all them, I just yeah. try to ride with it these days.
0: Yeah. <laughs> my my dad showed me Life of Brian for the first time. So that tells you about my family.
1: Well, what an amazing film. And in the 80s with uh, Monty Python, I would have to go watch bootleg copies of it at my like Latin teacher's house. Sometime. He would He would, I mean, it wasn't what you wanted your kids to see.
0: Oh, no. Okay, wait my latin teacher in high school mr bell i can say this because unfortunately he's passed away so i can tell this story now he was he actually was a monk and he was kicked out of the monastery because he was also an alcoholic and he ended up coming and teaching high at the public high school and
1: being a high school teacher a, a latin
0: high school teacher and on his desk he had this little monk doll. Like, it was no big deal. It was just like a little monk on his desk. Great. Full, full
1: of alcohol. No. Right? Full of alcohol. Even
0: better. You push the head down on the monk and a big penis came out from between the robes.
1: Of course. And he had that in the class. Had it in the classroom yes.
0: for decades. And none of the the administration ever could f- figure it out. But all the students knew. It was classic.
1: Did he ever do it in front of the class or was it just the rumor?
0: Oh no, he he or you would people would do it. People would do it and he'd be like stop doing that. Somebody'll see.
1: <laughs> I had an episcopalian priest who was female in my high school and she's gay, she came out as gay and they did she's a bishop. She's turning into a bishop now, but she was amazing. I loved theology. I thought it was so interesting and and then I'd like studied the Quran in my school to understand other theology and had like all these like, come back to Christianity, there's hope for you. I'm like, what? I just studied it. What?
0: Yeah. Well, know. that's the, the, Virginia. the word theology means just studying of religions. It doesn't mean you have a belief in any particular, it just means studying something, all theologies. Like, Yeah. My father has his doctorate in theology, even though he's actually an Episcopal reverend
1: oh oh Episcopal wow man my school I went to chapel six days a week we had Saturday off and Sunday was church for realsies yeah oh. Ooh, but I was always even in St. Thomas I was at an Episcopalian school where they would chastise us for effing around in chapel oh, and stuff no
0: my dad was not that priest I promise my dad was the cool one he was he was so much like I went to him when I was having a problem with like cocaine and I said, dad, I need you to get me into rehab. And he said, and he just turned to me in a nutshell. He basically just turned and said, tough shit. You got yourself into it. You get yourself out. Wow.
1: Wow. And I'm like, wow. wow. Well,
0: like tough, ooh. tough love.
1: Understanding, understanding dad. Well,
0: thanks. He, I mean, it's a longer story, but I mean, he was, he was understanding and he was doing his version of tough love to sort of say, I have faith in you to correct, you know, self-correct your own life. You've made some mistakes, but now that you are aware of the mistakes you've made, you can make you can correct for them. And so in the end it was the thing that motivated me to finally quit. So I mean I uh you know, good for him he knew how to manipulate me.
1: Well, my stepbrother is addicted to cocaine and he's been in and out of prison and in and out of rehab. Last couple of years, he had open heart surgery, and he lost his foot. You know, because of diabetes setting in, and it's like he still won't uh, quit. Oh it. no, I, so... I quit
0: twenty one years ago. Now, so
1: see, no, you're you like it worked for you, but sometimes it's a harder road for some.
0: Oh, absolutely. I I don't know how I did it. I, I even did it cold turkey, no narcotics, anonymous, no nothing. I just I just locked myself in my house for three months cut all ties to my old friends and my old job and then got a new job and moved away. That's it. Like, and
1: Well, it's, ha- it's hard when all your friends are doing oh, it. Yeah. And I, I was in Florida in the 80s. So that was part of my repertoire. Like I went to college at 17. I learned a lot about drugs and alcohol, hallucinogens, things like that, big party school. And like I learned that I had to leave that behind in my life because it was great and I liked it, but the results weren't good. The results really weren't good. So,
0: Ironically, the the year that I was uh, doing heroin was the only year in my entire collegiate career that I got straight A's.
1: Yeah, my friend and I, we would not do any of our homework and then we'd do coke and get it done in two nights for like mid-semester and stuff like that. It was not ideal. And I'm lucky that I've never experienced heroin. My RISD roommate OD'd once or twice, and I had asked him to get some for me so I could try it, and he didn't, and I thank him, thank him, thank him, because I would have gone down that rabbit hole hugely. I have so many friends here in Seattle that like grew up with kids in high school with giant holes in their arms because they've been addicted to heroin and
0: Mm. i I never shot anything up like that was my line i would snort i would smoke i would do any of that never shot up right
1: i was like i just want to try to snort some like oh no
0: yeah the, the good old days
1: well when you're in your 20s shit can happen to you that you can recover from i just think it's it's harder as you get older and Definitely with glass, there's a lot of alcohol issues because yeah. people like to socialize and dehydrate their bodies after they've been sweating all day. So, but at a certain age, it's like, I can't do, I can't do this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't well, work. Well, at the time I was a roadie touring around with rock and roll bands was based at the 930 club. And, but, the, but then I decided to quit and I was just like, I can't continue this job because my job was do drugs. Set up for bands, do drugs with bands, break down bands, and then you know buy drugs for everybody else in the crew and all this kind of stuff. And so it was just a, it was a time in my life and it was a lot of fun. And I'm very lucky that I got out without being arrested, and uh, and I was able to move on. And and you know it's still still with me. But I mean, again, 21 years ago.
1: But it colors it colors your life. Oh, I mean, I have a friend very high artist and one of the things he started out doing was being a roadie for husker do and like so yeah exactly so exactly yeah yeah so you guys had like he loved it and he loved that experience and he was at like the pinnacle of music at that time but then like uh, he had to go and do other stuff to you know whatever go to risd teach at yale
0: Ah, rough life
1: (laughs) things yeah rough life but yeah. Here's one of my little babies. There we go.
0: I'm seeing an egg shaped. It looks like it's made out of like what looks like bolts, shapes kind of thing. Like or no, not bolts, nuts. Nuts.
1: Yeah, well they're hexagonal. They're hexagonal forms. Yep. But but you can so they're hexagonal units that are woven together with copper wire. But the special thing about them is that when I heat them they turn conical. So you can think of them a little bit like uh, Rome, the keys, the rocks in a Roman arch being keyed together to fit into place. So this is how B cells are made mm-hmm. with hexagon. They make them in a hexagonal form. And also the skeletons for coral colonies Interesting. are hexagonal tubes. So they just fit together and they're really strong when they're all together like
0: that. Could, then, could you yeah. Could you remove the wire after you've sort of melted it all together?
1: Oh, there's no melting.
0: Oh, okay.
1: They're all loose. I
0: don't
1: know if you guys can hear that. I can hear it. That one, they're loose. This one, they're really tied down. So I have a, I'm holding a sculpture that's some stainless steel squiggle. And then in between the stainless steel squiggle, there's a flat plane of my glass hollow Marini. Blue. Yeah, they're woven together. Yeah, this one's a blue. Oh. Uh, and it's, it's, you know what this is, it's like a test. I want to make this the size of a calder and have it be outside. Like, so I'm testing to see like what kind of forms would be wonderful if they were like 20 feet tall. So I like to think of where public art could go, although it's hard to put glass in public art. I do like working with the community in public art together. So even if I do glass, I try to involve my community. Then here's a weird one. I made a piece like this before, and I called it Calyx. So it looks like a bunch of volcanoes joined together in a pelt and wrapped around. So now it looks a little bit like a water bear or a tardigrade. Mm -hmm. So it has that sort of inside and outside happening at the same time. So it's a little bit of a, like there's a little squeeze. You can see a little give in the work. So it's all separate pieces just bound together with copper wire which has a good memory. I try not to make my work too flexible that it can flex back and forth like this cuz that would snap it. So I work with having the metal supports in it sometimes and to make it larger. But but yeah, just wanted to
0: throw some visual aids into an audio podcast. I totally understand.
1: Or just talk about the construction a little bit that comes more from Engineering from nature, like how Buckminster Fuller Fuller thinks of thought of his way of engineering things. He looked at nature and he learned from nature how the nature engineered things, and he mimicked that in his architecture. It's taken me a long time to kind of figure out exactly why he's so cool, but that's one of it. But he was an engineer, but it was more of a bio engineer. So I do believe in uh, what is it? biomimicry that if we survive as a species we have to learn how to mimic how nature does things and to adapt our lives to that because this rectilinear existence does not work with nature so we'll see how it goes
0: yeah buckminster fuller is one of my life dreams to be able to buy one of his designs as for a home design and build it oh wow by the
1: oh the geodesic whatever no actually
0: the one i the one that i love is a, a underground one that goes in a spiral and like light comes all the way through it it's absolutely stunning
1: is that in israel is that the... i think somebody
0: has built it since then yeah i mean i remember seeing it when i was like 20.
1: look up friedrich kiesler he was a german architect mm-hmm. and he dealt a lot with like cave structure and he has this beautiful piece That's like underground with an oculus and tiered steps coming up, and then this obelisk coming to meet the oculus. Oh my goodness! Like, I maybe at one point you'll be able to go and see the great work, the great earthwork that's going on by James Terrell. I understand he had like a 50 year project but they're trying to shorten it so they can get people in to get more revenue so they can keep going with it so yeah exactly right you know you you have high ideals but you need the money so that's how it goes but it would be fun to he does a lot of that interior space exterior space Hmm. and i often think of my pieces although they're small as architectural models on the boat i used to build a lot of cities out of notepaper and tape
0: nice all right
1: (laughs) anyway Thanks again.
0: I hope you're enjoying and learning from the podcast as much as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If there's someone that you admire or respect in the art world that you want to hear me talk to, please send me a message through Instagram. I will do my best to get them as a guest. Additionally, if you have any questions for future guests, like for me, I want to talk to somebody who does exhibition design, like talk about flow of traffic, where to put the right artwork, what the the, the optimum heights are, wall colors, temperature, all this kind of stuff. If anybody knows somebody like that, I want to know the answer to those questions. So I'm wondering for you, what are the things that you want to know about that I could possibly find for you? Send me your questions and I will do my best to get them answered for you. In the near future, we will be starting a newsletter. So please sign up on our website, wisefoolpod.com. And no matter what you're doing right now, try to make it fun.